This is the Careers in Review podcast. We'll show you how to navigate the job market and career space like a pro. Starting now, here is your host, Ediana Rosen. Hello, everybody, and welcome back. Today, I have Austin. Oh, my goodness. I am blushing over here because Austin, I've been following his journey on LinkedIn for years now, and I am so excited that he decided to come on the podcast today. Austin is the founder of CultivateCulture.com, where he helps people land jobs they love without traditional experience and without applying online. Hey, that is exactly what we love teaching on this podcast. Austin's job search system stems from his personal experience transitioning from a new grad with biology degree with a 2.5 GPA and a job in healthcare that landing interviews and offers at Microsoft, Google, and Twitter. His strategies have been featured in Forbes, Business Insider, Fastco, and Inc., and he has helped thousands of job seekers land jobs at places like Microsoft, Google, Amazon, Apple, Facebook, I mean, you name it, all of the big names. The most important thing is that he has done that, helped his clients without having to apply online. Austin, Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Welcome. And please let us know a little bit about you besides what I just mentioned, because I know you're, you'll do better justice on it. <laughs> well, thanks so much, Adiana. I really appreciate you having me. And that was a super generous intro, so no, no pressure on my end to live up to it. But you pretty much covered the, the basis. So in a nutshell, you know, I graduated from college and I didn't have the best grades and I didn't know what I wanted to do. And I was feeling pretty lost the one thing that was certain was I was in this job that was not for me and I needed to get out of it and go somewhere else. So I set my sights on tech after doing a little bit of reflection and I immediately realized that the traditional process wasn't going to be for me. So I had to find a bit of a different way to go about the job search. And I spent about a year and a half developing the system that I used to, as you mentioned, get in the door with Google and Microsoft, etc., I accepted an offer from Microsoft and I worked there for about five years. I worked in two different roles, partner manager, director of partner development. I was promoted three times. And all the while I was building my business cultivated culture on the side. And I recently left a little over a year ago, almost a year and a half ago to take cultivated culture full time. So that's been the journey. And I'm excited to jump into any aspect of it with you. Well, thank you for that, Austin. And you know, it's interesting because the one thing that I really love about your story is that you're super open about not having the best grades in school. And I think that a lot of us can relate to that, but we're afraid of saying it out loud because we go to school, you have to do well and study hard because that's the only way that you're going to get a good paying job. I love the fact that you have kind of peeled the onion on that because a lot of current students think that if they don't have a certain GPA or they don't go to a certain school, they're not going to get a good paying job. And some of them even still get confused. Should I still put my GPA on my resume? My GPA was below 3.0. Is that going to hurt me? And I think that that perspective just is something that I haven't heard anybody else talk about. And I think that's what really kind of stood out for me when I first started following your journey. You mentioned something in the beginning of the conversation about how you were just in this job that you knew wasn't for you. Can you just walk me through your thought process on where you decided, this is not for me, I need a change? What kind of clicked in your head for that? Yeah, so it wasn't as nuanced as some other people's might be. It was incredibly obvious from the moment I stepped foot in that job. So to even rewind just a little bit, during my junior year of college, everybody's looking for an internship, right? You have that period, that summer where you're not really eligible for the full-time job, but you want to get some of that work experience. And so all these juniors, and now I think even sophomores, are vying for these internships. 
So being the person that I was, you know, it goes well beyond the grades. In college, I was definitely incredibly lazy. You know, I wasn't putting the work in that my peers were putting in, my friends were putting in. I just didn't really see the value in a lot of the classes that I was taking, which is a conversation, you know, in and of itself. And I I think I could have done a little bit more there, but also, you know, the system that we are put into as students is an interesting one as well. But I didn't see the point in doing all this stuff. And I also had this rebellious attitude, if you will, where all of my friends were doing X and all everybody else was doing X and I didn't want to do that. So what ended up happening was in a very true form of nepotism and privilege, I think I was offered this internship at a company that my roommate's dad had a connection with. So very easy, not a big lift from my side. I started there. I worked there the whole summer and they offered me the job. I accepted it kind of sight unseen. I didn't really ask about salary. I didn't ask about really anything that you should be asking about if you're accepting a new job. I just took it because it meant that I would be able to slack off senior year and not have to worry so much about finding a job and getting good grades and all that. So then fast forward to graduation, and I take two weeks between graduation and starting this job. I get there, and immediately it's obvious that this isn't going to be a good situation. So this is a a multifaceted thing. First and foremost, the salary that I was being paid was not even close to covering the cost of living and the bills and all that, that I had stepped into living in Charlotte, you know, needing a car for my job. Basically my rent and my car payment took up like 70%, 80% of my income. And then you have to buy groceries and do all these other things. So I ended up racking up about $15,000 of credit card debt in the first couple of months of graduating school. So that wasn't great. And I knew that I needed to make more money if I wanted to even just be able to live like a normal life. It's not like I was going out there and spending on these luxurious things. Like I could barely even get the basics covered. So that was the first piece. The second piece was the manager that I had. The person, I actually worked with him when I was an intern and he seemed like a really good guy. And then I started full time and something changed. And I'm not sure what it was exactly, but all of a sudden, nothing that I did was right he would tell me that I didn't have a future in this field or I didn't have what it takes and the effort that I was giving was subpar and all of these things. And I didn't feel that that was fair. You know, I didn't love the job, but I still was giving it my best. And that kind of wears you down after a while. So after a couple of months, I decided, you know, I need to get out of this situation. And the last piece here was just the job itself. I quickly realized that that was not for me after going out and doing the job itself. What I did for the internship was very, very different from the job that I accepted. Essentially, I was in medical device sales. So I was waking up at two, three in the morning to drive a couple of hours to these different hospitals and be there by five, six a.m. for surgeries, mainly because I was the backup. So the full-time rep would call me the night before and say, you know, hey, Austin, I need you to be at this hospital that's three hours away tomorrow by five a.m. So I was doing that five, six days a week, and it was just really mentally taxing and exhausting. And it wasn't what I was passionate about. It might have been a little different if this was truly the career for me, but I realized that it wasn't. And so I had to make this change. That was where things got interesting. But for all those reasons, it was very, very obvious that that this wasn't going to be the career path for me. And I had to find one that was more aligned with my values, my strengths, and where I wanted to go with my life. Right. Wow. I mean, I'm just thinking about everything that you just mentioned, and a lot of red flags are just going in my head. But It's just so typical of new graduates to just be so thankful, like, oh, I have a job. Like, I don't have to worry about it. I graduated and that's exactly the next step, right? Finding that job. And sometimes because maybe you don't have the right 
I guess, counseling or somebody who's going to tell you, hey, have you asked about this and that? And I think that's why it's important even for younger people who are just graduating to have a, a sponsor or a mentor, somebody that can really just walk them through this the process because you just get yourself in this situation and then there's no way to get out of it. Or at least you feel like there's no way to get out of it. So thank you so much for, for being vulnerable and sharing that. I appreciate it. And it gives us a lot of relations to how that got you to where you are today. I'm curious as well to know, understanding that you have a little bit of a sales background, why career coaching? Like when did that click for you? Why did you become a career coach to help the people that you're currently helping? Yeah, so that's a big fast forward and a lot of stuff happened in between that I think sets that up. So going back even to before junior year and before my internship in college, yeah, I'd always wanted to be an entrepreneur. And that was one of the reasons I had the attitude towards school that I did because we were forced to take these classes that I didn't think were very relevant to the real world, which, you know, in hindsight, I, I would get a lot of joy out of taking them now, being in the position that I'm in. But if I was taking an extracurricular course or a, a course that was outside of my major, rather, that didn't necessarily relate exactly to the real world, I had a hard time with that and understanding why I'm spending my time here. And then on top of that, I looked at all these people who were doing the things that I wanted to be doing. And a lot of them didn't place a lot of emphasis on school as far as I knew. That, to me, those were the people that I was emulating. So I'm going through this whole traditional process and everybody is kind of doing the same thing as I mentioned. Everybody's studying really hard. Everybody's working to get good grades. And then they're going for all the same types of internships. And then they're getting jobs in these management training programs or these different cohorts where there's a lot of students who look just like them. Essentially, what's happening is everybody's just following the path that's sort of been paved for them by the generation before or, you know, the system itself. That was interesting to me because I looked at what that had to offer and none of it was super appealing to me. So I always wanted to do my own thing. That's kind of the moral of the story. I spent a lot of time trying to figure out what that thing was. And that was the biggest issue for me. So of course, when you're in college or you're younger, you want to start the next Facebook or you want to start, you know, the next insert big tech company here. And that was not going to happen for me uh, for many reasons. But I still got started on pretty much any idea that came to mind. So I was very big into music in college. I ended up starting my own music blog. This was at a time where music blogs were kind of gaining a lot of popularity. This whole online, you know, shift from, you know, music had always been in, you know, LimeWire, Napster, you could download it. But now we see these streaming services and you can embed it in the blog post and it's very easy to find stuff. So I thought that was cool. And I started creating my own blog post and I had my own blog about music. Now, nobody really came to it, but it taught me how to build a website and it taught me how to do this stuff from scratch, which came in handy later. So that was kind of a failure in the traditional sense. No views, no revenue, no anything like that. But I did gain some skills there. And then a couple of summers later, I wanted to start an apparel line. Uh, I was really big into fishing in college. And I thought a lot of the fishing gear was made for people who were 40 years older than me and 80 pounds heavier than me. And it didn't really you know, jive with what I wanted to be wearing. So I started down that path. And that turned out to be a flop as well. Kind of lost interest in it. But I had invested some time and money in working with freelancers to come up with these different clothing templates. And, you know, we went through that process. So I kind of pulled out the ability to find freelancers, work with them from that. And then I graduated and I decided that I wanted to create this app. Essentially, what happened was I invested a couple thousand bucks into building a prototype. And basically, when the prototype was done, two other companies that had venture funding released essentially the same app. So... 
this is essentially my story of failing my way to success. But the reason that I share all that is kind of twofold. One, I failed at a lot of things before I found something that worked. You know, cultivated culture in my business now was, I think it was the fifth or sixth business that I tried to start. And one of the reasons it was successful was because of the compound effects of all the lessons that I learned from the failures before that. But the second piece is that I just always had an eye for opportunity. Not to say that I had an eye for good opportunities, but if there was an opportunity that I thought might be fruitful, I was willing to just jump in headfirst and see if I could make it happen. So all of these silly ideas that probably weren't going to work out from the very beginning, I didn't really care about that because if there was at least one shot, like any opportunity to live this dream of being an entrepreneur, not having to go to the corporate world, I was going to take that. What ended up happening was... I got to this point where you know four or five ideas had failed and I thought well maybe entrepreneurship isn't for me at this time. You know maybe it's going to happen later but right now I I don't know what to do because I'm working in these jobs I don't like. I'm not being paid what I'm worth. I'm investing so much time into these businesses that aren't working. I need to figure something else out. And so one of the things that I did was I looked ahead to where I wanted to be and I mentioned those people that I emulated earlier. I looked at those people and I said, well, what do they do? And the vast majority of them had their own online businesses. And so I said, well, that's what I want to do. I clearly don't have the skills to get there yet, or I would already be there. So what if I built this career path where I do take more of the traditional route in terms of you know having a formal job title at a company and you know working for a corporate entity? But in those roles, I was able to build the skills that I needed to create my own thing. And so essentially, I started with the end goal and I worked backwards. And so I said, okay, running my online business is the end goal. What would be an awesome step before that? Well, that would be working at an amazing place like a Microsoft or a Google. I feel like I'd meet a lot of people, maybe find somebody that could be a co-founder. I'd be exposed to a lot of digital marketing, a lot of companies. So that would be the step before it. But I wasn't able to make that jump immediately. So the step before that was working at a mid-sized startup. Um, That would kind of be a stepping stone from where I was into Microsoft and Google. But I was still working in healthcare. So I realized that that may even be a stretch. So what if I just focus on getting in the door at a small startup that was early stage, you know, they were open to non-traditional backgrounds. So I essentially started with the end goal and I worked my way backwards to the next step that was immediately feasible. Then I started investing in it. So to then fast forward to cultivated culture, essentially what happened was during that time where I went through, I checked every single one of those boxes. I took every one of those steps that I just mentioned. And during that time between working in healthcare and landing at my job at Microsoft, I was tweaking and testing this whole job search system. And it eventually culminated in those offers you know, from Google, Microsoft, et cetera. And when I started, all these people, especially from college, reached out to me and they asked how I did it. You know, I was the kid with terrible grades. I was the kid who never studied. I was the kid who didn't seem to care about his future in college. And now here I am working for Microsoft. A lot of people reached out and they basically said exactly that. You know, how'd you make this happen given your background? And I started sharing what I learned. You know, I started walking people through the system. I started to get some feedback from people. I started to see what would happen when they implemented it. And so after the 20th or so person reached out to me, I said, well, this might be an opportunity. Why don't I write this up in a blog post? And why don't I put it out there and see what happens? And so that's exactly what I did. I wrote this massive blog post that's still pinned to the top of my blog today. And it still seems to be just as relevant as it was when I first wrote it. I just shared my whole system. And anybody who asked me, I would send them the link. And then on top of that, I did some promotion behind it. I went and found a bunch of influencers in the career space, whether it was these large websites or people on social media. And I just sent it to them and asked them, you know, or I said, hey, if you think this is valuable for your audience, you know, it'd be great if you spread the word, but no worries if not. And a lot of them spread the word. So it got about 60,000 views in the first two months. And that's when I realized, okay, we might be onto something here. 
that's what led me to career coaching. I would have never told you a couple of years before I started this business that career coaching was my passion. It was truly that career coaching was the vehicle that allowed me to achieve the goal and live the life that I wanted to live. And now it's expanded into so much more. You know, it's obviously so gratifying to work with somebody and see them get that job, as you well know. And there's so many other aspects, awesome aspects of being in this space and running this business that were sort of side effects, if you will, or silver linings that came along with me being able to pursue this entrepreneurial dream. Wow. Wow. That's such a great background. Thank you, Austin, for that. And I'll be sure to, if you don't mind, just, I want to share that link as well. It's going to be linked in the show notes here for everybody to read. But if you can think of the main three tips that you can give somebody back when those people from college were reaching out to you, Hey, how did you do this? How did you end up going to getting an offer at Microsoft. And obviously behind closed doors, you knew that you have gotten an offer from Google and these other big companies. The main three things you can tell somebody, this can help you get to where you want to go in your career. What would those things be? Yeah, so the first thing I would say is that you should look at the data. And what I realized inadvertently was that a lot of people just buy into a system simply because it's the one that's handed to them. So one of my favorite quotes is a Twain quote, paraphrasing, he essentially says, when you find yourself on the side of the majority, it's time to pause and reflect. And I really like that quote because I think it sums up my philosophy and sort of how I've, I've operated. But specifically in the job search, we see all of our friends and our colleagues and ourselves submitting online application after online application and not seeing any results. But people keep coming back to that system. And what I found over the years is that it really comes down to the fact that people don't really know that there's another option out there. They think that that's kind of the only process because that's the one that we're sort of set up to buy into, right? When we are searching for jobs, our parents, our teachers, our career counselors, they all tell us, well, go tweak your resume, go find these jobs online, go apply to them. And you know, you're going to have to apply to a bunch most likely. And that's kind of the system that we're fed into. And then, of course, if you go to a company's website, there's only one way to go about applying for the role, which is to go through that process. You find the job, you click the apply button, you fill everything out, and you submit it. So this whole system is built around that one process. Just because that is the primary method of making this happen doesn't necessarily mean that it's the most effective or the right one for you. And that's something that I learned from talking to a number of people out there. So one of the big things that I did, and I would say, you know, this could be maybe like a subset under number one, if you will, or number two, is that if you're changing careers, if, if you're going somewhere and you're coming from a non-traditional background, one of the most effective things that I did was to really focus my outreach on people who had also come from a non-traditional background. So for example, if I was trying to connect with people at Google, I wouldn't look for somebody who had a marketing degree and then worked in marketing roles and now worked in marketing at Google. Instead, what I would do is try to find somebody who worked in marketing at Google who came from a finance background or you know a UX background or something totally different. And the reason for that is because that person would, on a deeper level, understand my journey, right? They had to go through the same obstacles. They had to deal with the same objections. They had to kind of grapple with the same questions that I did coming from a non-traditional background. And so I always tried to, find people who had been where I want to go. And that's the, the subset of folks that I really prioritize when it came to advice that I should take because there's so much advice out there. And so in talking to those people, what I realized was, and circling back to the data piece, what I realized was that the people who had gotten the jobs that I wanted to get, they didn't really focus on applying online. Instead, most of them had done two things. One, they got a referral. And two, they found a creative way to illustrate their value. So that kind of brings us into the second piece, which is both of those. So just to recap, the first thing I would say is go look at the data. And if you don't 
have the data or you can't find it, test stuff out for yourself. Apply for jobs online. Go try to get referrals. Go through recruiters and then see which channel is most effective for you because it's also different for everybody. Like I struggled with online applications because I had a non-traditional background. A lot of people with traditional backgrounds also struggle with online applications. But my wife, Lily, for example, she has a very specialized background. So when she applies for a job online, her hit rate is probably the highest that I've ever seen in the thousands and thousands and thousands of people that have come through our doors. So I would never tell her to not apply online. I would tell her to double down on what's working. For most people, that's typically not online apps. The only way you're going to figure that out is if you actually go out there, you run the numbers, and you get the data for yourself. So that's the first thing. The second thing is that when you look at those numbers, what you're likely going to find is that referrals are where most hires are happening. So if you look at the general data, you know, there's no peer-reviewed scientific study uh, out there on this, but the anecdotal evidence shows that referrals make up anywhere from 40 to 80% of hires. And that varies by company, by industry, by role, by manager, so many factors. But that is substantially higher than what we see for online apps. So typically, when you apply for a job online, you're competing with an average of around 250 people, and you have roughly a 2% chance of just getting the interview, like not even getting the offer, but just getting in the door for the interview. So referrals are typically where most of the hires are happening, but fewer people are going down that route. Once you understand that data and once you see this for yourself, you should reallocate your time and your energy investment to where the hiring is happening. So instead of spending 90% of your time applying for jobs online and 10% of your time networking, you should flip that, in my opinion. And I think that you should be spending 90% of your time building relationships with people who can influence your ability to get hired at the companies that you want to get hired at. And then sure, you can spend 10% of your time or 20 if that feels better to you, but you can spend a smaller portion of your time showing up to the online job board, seeing what's new and applying for those roles. So that's the second piece is to focus on referrals or you know whatever's working for you. And then the third thing is finding creative ways to illustrate your value. The traditional process and just the job search process in general, not even the traditional process, but the job search process in general is a sales process. You are the product and you are also the salesperson because you're essentially selling your skills for a price, which is the salary that you're going to be paid. So if you want to win, you need to be a great salesperson. You need to be able to sell yourself. You need to be able to market yourself, so on and so forth. The traditional job search materials are not great marketing materials. Resumes are a really, really hard and tough way to illustrate value. LinkedIn profiles are a little bit better, but only if you tap into some specific aspects of LinkedIn, like creating content, like engaging with others. If you're just relying on a profile, that's still not a great way to convey your value. So instead, we need to think about other ways that we can stand out. And this is kind of twofold. One is, what are some other ways that I can showcase my value in the clearest way possible? And then the second piece is, what is a way that I can showcase my value that none of my competition is doing? And the good news is when most people are still relying on resumes and cover letters and traditional documents, that creates the opportunity for us to do something different. And when we do something different, we stand out. And then when we do something different, we also get more control. So one of the things that I recommend and one of the most effective strategies that I have in my toolbox is something that I call a value validation project. And that is essentially a deliverable that you put together that shows that you've done the research on your target company and your target role. It shows a specific opportunity or problem that you're looking to solve that's highly relevant to this role. And then you offer up a couple of ideas or solutions or pieces of feedback or whatever it is. And the cool part about this is that you own it. So you get to use the language that you want to use, not like weird resume jargon. You also get to focus on the value and the message that you want to focus on versus only being able to focus on your past, which you have to do in a resume. 
And then finally, you can tie it directly to the role. So you can essentially try out for this role and show people exactly what you'd bring to the table. And when everybody else is talking about their past and hoping that you'll connect the dots, that can be a really, really powerful strategy. So those are the three things that I would say. And those are the three things that are at the core of the job search system that helped me see success in my career and the job search system that we teach all the people who come through our community. Wow, that is so awesome. I've actually never even heard of that idea of the last one you just mentioned. Do you mind just going into a little bit more detail as like maybe giving us an example of somebody who has done this very well? Because if you think about it, the actual strategy, brilliant, because not a lot of people are doing it, but also could be because it's taking time right? You have to take the time to build that out to understand the problem, aka reading the job description and understand what it is they need from you. Can you give us an example of somebody who has done this successfully and why do you think that it worked for them? Definitely. So I'll preface by saying that when you go into the job search using the system that I recommend, we're typically choosing 10 to 15 target companies and we're spending 100% of our energy on that small subset of companies. So that's the first thing that I'll say. Now, my recommendation is that you work to build a relationship with somebody at those companies before you put together the value validation project. So really the two criteria that I tell people when they ask me, you know, when should I do this? One is if you have a formal interview booked, amazing, good for you. But two, and you know, more common, I think, is if you go out and you have a good conversation with somebody who can influence your ability to get hired. So maybe you have a coffee chat with the hiring manager, or maybe you go back and forth you have a conversation over email with somebody who's on the team or knows somebody on the team. These are all examples of people who can have some sort of say or influence over the hiring decision. If you have just an initial touch point with them and you think, yes, like I think this person will go to bat for me, that is the other checkbox. So what I don't want people to necessarily do is to just create a dozen value validation projects and send them out. If you do want to do that, you know, more power to you, but I think that you are going to invest a lot of time and not get... You'll get a return, I think, but you'll invest more time than you have to getting there. So like any other strategy, whether it's applying online, whether it's reaching out to strangers for networking, whether it's value validation projects, like you're going to get far more no's than yeses in most cases if you just are using this blanket approach. So if we get a bit more specific and intentional and we create some guidelines, we can optimize our chances for success. So for me, that means either having the formal interview or having that conversation. So then what we're going to do is we're going to go out and research this company and we're going to try to find one of those opportunities or those problems. And then we're going to build out some solution. To give an example, one of the people that I was working with, one of my clients back in 2019, she was a graduate student coming out of school, competing with a lot of other graduate students for some of these programs. The one that she had her sights set on was Microsoft's marketing program. It was a rotational marketing program. And because of that, because of the nature of the program, it wasn't just an individual job. It had even more applicants because these are programs that are being promoted at schools. They're just, you know, there's one page for everybody to apply for the entire program, right? So they're funneling everybody to that page. There's just a lot of competition. She sat down and she thought about, you know, well, what is everybody else doing? And it was the same thing we just talked about. They're putting together resumes. They're putting together cover letters. Maybe they have a portfolio online. And if I want to win this job, I need to find a way to stand out from not just, you know, a couple hundred other people, but several thousand other people. She sat down and she looked at, and, and we did a little bit of this together. She did the bulk of the legwork. She looked through all of Microsoft's products and she said, what products could use a little marketing magic? And back in 2019, this was when Slack was the dominant force in the workplace communication space. So Microsoft Teams had a big boost through the pandemic. But before that, they were struggling to capture market share. And that's when we were working together. 
So that's what she identified. She looked at the other products. They're all doing fairly well. She said, look, Teams, I think, is the biggest opportunity for growth if we just put a little love into it and we come up with some creative strategies. So that was the start. And then she started doing some research. So she went out and she read a bunch of articles on Teams and then Slack. Then she actually went out and she combed through reviews in the app stores and online between the two products. And then finally, she actually went out and she surveyed people who were using both products. And she took all of this data and she looked for areas of opportunity. And basically, she came up with three things that she believed Microsoft Teams could do better to win more market share. So the first thing was making it obvious as to when you should use Teams. A lot of the feedback that she got from the surveys and in the reviews said, why would I use this instead of sending an email? Or why would I use this instead of posting to Yammer or some other internal company communication tool? Like, why would I use this chat thing? She came up with the idea of a little bit of an educational onboarding. So when people downloaded Microsoft Office, or for people who hadn't used Teams, even though they downloaded Office, maybe we send them an email, or maybe we funnel them to a page where there's kind of this interactive map that shows all the tools and will tell you, you know, hey, here's when you get the most value out of using this tool versus this tool. And here's some features you may not know about. So that was kind of the introductory idea. The second one is, is my personal favorite. Essentially, she said, well... You already have this suite of products. You know, Microsoft Office, so many people are using them. I think at the time, there was something like 86 million Microsoft Office users or something along those lines. Like, you're already, they have Teams installed on their computer because they're using Office, but they're just not using it. So how do we funnel people there? Well, the best way we can do that is to present Teams to somebody when it's beneficial to them. So she and I went back and forth and we were like, what's the most frustrating part of using these tools? And for me, it was whenever I created a slide deck that was too big to send via email, it was just so frustrating. I said, well, what if PowerPoint was smart enough to say, hey, you press save on this file, it's now too big to send in an email, why don't you try sending it through Teams? And so maybe you click a link and it opens Teams up and it automatically attaches the PowerPoint deck and you can send it off to whoever. And the cool part about that was, you know, maybe I send it to you and I say, you know, hey, Adiana, here's the deck we were talking about, blah, blah, blah. Can you take a look? And then you look at it and you, you're like, oh, there's a typo on slide nine. Then you come back to Teams and you tell me there's a typo on slide nine. And then I say, I fix it. And now all of a sudden what's happening? We're having a conversation on Microsoft Teams. So by putting Teams in front of these users when it's beneficial to them is definitely going to increase some adoption because people are going to say, that was really easy. Like that saved me a bunch of emails. I didn't have to find a, a weird you know, workaround to send this. Like, let me use this thing more often. And then maybe they expand from there. And then the third thing was just around mobile usability. What she did was she got creative about understanding real problems that this team had, and she devised real solutions, like solutions that she might devise if she was working in this role. So that's what she led with. Um, She put that in her application. She also went a step beyond, and she found 15 people who were recruiters or hiring managers or who worked with this program, and she sent it to all of them. So lo and behold, she gets the interview. And she leads with that deck. She sends it to all the people that she's interviewing with beforehand. And no surprise, a lot of the focus of the interviews was talking through, how'd you put this together? This is really interesting. Tell me more about it. She ended up getting the offer. And I think a big reason for that was because she so clearly and tangibly illustrated the value that she would bring to the table that team would be hard-pressed to look at somebody's resume or their cover letter or a LinkedIn profile and see the same type of value that she created when putting this thing together. So that's why they work. And then just the last piece I'll say is that you know a lot of people will probably mention the same thing that you said, which is, this is a big-time investment. Taking it a step further, you didn't say this, but you know, am I doing free work, essentially? And what I'd say to that is, you really have to think about the upsides of landing a new job. 
and what that gets you. Like, does that get you a 10 or 20% raise? Does that get you out of a toxic situation or even just into a better situation? Does that put you in a new role that you want to be in? Does that allow you to work with an amazing manager who's going to level up your career? Like, we need to think about all these things. And then we need to look at, you know, how much extra time we're investing in this value validation project. And even if it's, you know, five, 10 hours, whatever it is, is that worth an extra 10%, 20% in salary alone? And then is it worth it when we layer on everything else? So typically what I found is when you do the math, I think the consulting rate, like if you charge the company an hourly consulting rate for the number of hours that you put into the project and then divided it by the raise that you got, I think the rate is something like 10x what you would be making hourly in this new job that you get. And so my answer is always, you know, if you're not willing to work for basically 10x what you're going to be making, then, you know, I'm I'm not sure how badly you really want this job. And then I'm going to question why it's on your list of 10 to 15 companies, because the whole point of this process and doing all this work is to end up at a place that you're really excited about, not just a place that said, oh, you applied here, I guess we'll bring you in for an interview, but a place that you were like, I'm going to work at this company, I'm going to work in this role, I'm going to make it happen. And that's why we put in the extra hours. Wow. And I'm just interested in the timing of this. Um, How long do you usually work with a client when it comes to like come to you and let's say that they are pretty clear on what it is they want to do? Because we also have the job seekers who have no clue what they want to do. That's a whole nother step, right? Trying to help them or support them to find that out. But let's say, for example, in this case with your client, she knew where she wanted to go. She knew the path that she wanted to take from hiring you until job offer. How long does that usually take on average? Yeah. So the metric that I like to give is time to first interview. And I think it's tough to go beyond that simply because, and I can share the number, I have no problem doing that, but I don't want to set unrealistic expectations because to give a personal example, you know, my interview process at Google was six to seven months long. And my interview process at Microsoft was two months long. If I were to calculate the average there, it would be significantly longer than what it might be for other people or what it might be if I removed Google from that sample, right? We just don't know what's going on with the interview process and the teams. It's not in our control, right? So typically time to first interview for folks who are starting from absolute scratch is in the ballpark of seven to eight weeks. The average person who goes through our system typically lands a job in roughly three to four months. But some people do it faster, some people do it longer. I think what's more important than all of that is that instead of looking just at the time frame, we also have to look at the outcome. And typically the people that we work with see about a 40% raise compared to the traditional 10 to 15% for a new job. And they're also landing jobs at places that they've literally dreamed about working for their entire lives. So they're landing jobs at Google for them or you know whatever that comparable company might be. You don't have to work at Google or Microsoft to be successful and happy. But if you have that North Star... Some people that we work with, they want to work in entertainment. Maybe they want to be working for a record label and they like so badly want to do that because they're so passionate about music. Like that's what we focus on is getting people into these situations and these companies and these roles that they've been dreaming about and didn't necessarily think were possible before. So that typically happens in the ballpark of three to four months. But again, you know, some people are longer than that. Some people are shorter. It's kind of a mixed bag. But yeah, that's typically what the process looks like. And that woman that we were talking about, I think she was like a two month turnaround time. So. Not bad. Not bad at all. Yeah. The reason why I'm asking that is because a lot of job seekers have these unrealistic expectations of the process. And that all varies on company, on role. There's a lot of unknowns there. So I'm just happy to hear from somebody who has so much experience in the space to put that realistic TikTok on their mind uh, to realize that it could take a long time. Like For me, before I landed on a fan company, my process would take 
between three to four weeks. But my fan company experience was a lot different. It took me six months, I want to say, from the time that I applied to the time that I actually started the job. So, and that's also something that I mentioned, you know, we can definitely help you and support you through the process of getting that first job interview, because beyond that, there's just so many factors that we have no control over. So I am so happy to hear that from you. And then something else that I continue to hear in the examples that you are giving us uh, is connections and talking to people and networking. And that is a topic that make a lot of people sweat. A lot of people are super uncomfortable about reaching out to strangers and letting them know, hey, I apply for this role, or can you jump on a quick call to just tell me what your experience has been in this role or this company? What are some quick tips or rapid fire tips that you can give us there on how can people just stop being nervous about that and, and the success rate that you've had with your clients? Yeah. And even just jumping back to the last point. So I think the most recent data I saw said that the average job search is around six months long. I also saw a poll from a buddy of mine on LinkedIn who asked candidates about their expectations. So the poll was essentially, when you started your job search, how long did you think it would take? Far and away, the number one answer was one to two months. So there's a about a four-month discrepancy there, right? And that's where things get tough when you set out on your job search, it's exciting, right? You don't really think about all the other stuff. You think about the opportunity that's available to you. Like maybe this is the day that I go work at this amazing company that I've thought about. But then two months goes by and you've been rejected and you know your applications, you haven't heard back from them. And then that's when some of the self-doubt sets in. That's when we start to get a little demoralized. And that's really where that expectation management comes into play. So I'm glad that you mentioned it as well because I also think that people are like, oh, well, Austin, you know, his clients are getting there in three, four months, you know, that should be the same for me. I would kind of push back there and say, probably not. I think you need to plan for six months minimum. And then, you know, if you're doing this on your own and then you can figure it out there. I mean, the job search for me to get from where I was to where I wanted to be, it's like a year and a half um, and like several different roles. But to go into the question that you had around networking. So definitely, like this is the crux of my job search system. And essentially the way that I set it up is I mentioned finding those 10 to 15 companies earlier. The next step is to go find 10 to 15 contacts at each of those companies who can really influence your ability to get hired. So what I would say in terms of getting comfortable with networking and being effective with it, the biggest reason that people fail at networking is because one, they don't really have a framework or a playbook. Two, reaching out to strangers is intensely uncomfortable for a lot of folks. The combination of those things means that we don't get enough reps to really understand what strategies work for us, right? So if I wanted to get in really good shape, I can't just go to the gym and like do one bicep curl and expect to then be in really good shape. And, you know, if I wanted to be an amazing basketball player, I can't just go to the gym and shoot one jump shot and expect to be like the next Ray Allen or, or an amazing jump shooter. Like I need to go practice and get some reps in. And it's the same thing with networking. Like we can't just send one message or have one conversation and then be a good networker. We need to get these repetitions because we're going to make mistakes. We are going to say the wrong thing. We're going to wish we'd done something differently. Most importantly, we're going to take all those things and we're going to draw the lessons out of them. And that's what's going to allow us to be more effective. But you can't do that if you don't have the volume of repetitions that you need. There are two things that really helped me with this. First was just getting some repetitions in a low stakes environment. So what I mean by that is initially when I started my job search, I said, you know, I want to work at Google. So let me find all these VPs at Google and let me just go email them, blast, you know, messages to them, blah, blah, blah. And that was the worst thing I could have done because I was at my lowest level of experience and effectiveness. And I went right to the top of the food chain and my dream company. Instead, what I should have done was gone and found a bunch of contacts that 
were in the industry that I was targeting were in, you know, companies that were in that general space, but these weren't necessarily companies that I really cared about working for or people that I, and this sounds kind of harsh, but people that professionally I didn't feel were critical to my success. And the beauty of that is I can reach out to them and I can try different approaches. I can try different language. I can try different things. And if I mess up, it doesn't matter because I wasn't dying to land a job or build a relationship, you know, with that person or at that company. So I call this the sandbox. And I like to create, you know, at least three companies with 10 to 15 people at each of those companies. So like 30 to 45 folks in this sandbox. And I'm going to go out and I'm going to try cold emailing them. I'm going to try reaching out to them on LinkedIn. I'm going to try all these different strategies that we talk about. I'm going to refine them and I'm going to get better at them and I'm going to work to understand what the best system and recipe is for me. And then I'm going to move into implementing it at the companies that I actually want to work at. So that's the first thing. The second thing was just gamifying the process. So I was super terrified to reach out to people. And one of the things that really helped me overcome that, you know, I'm, I'm an introvert at heart, much prefer to be like on my couch at home, not interacting with folks than going to a meetup or whatever it is. So the idea of reaching out to a total stranger, especially when you're in this position of I need something and they don't, you know, that can be a really vulnerable place. And that was not a place that I felt comfortable in. So another thing that really helped me was kind of gamifying the situation. So what I did was I created a whole tracker. I just had an Excel spreadsheet and I had, you know, okay, here are all the contacts. And then I created these different templates. So I would have template one, two, and three, and they all took different approaches and used different language. And what I did was I just kept track of the data. So I would reach out to, you know, 60 people. I'd use one of the three templates on a group of 20 people. And then at the end, I would go look at the data and I would say, okay, this one's performing worse. Let me get rid of that. And now let me make a new iteration uh, off of the one that's performing best. And then let me rinse and repeat. Or maybe let me add a new tactic in here that I want to try that I haven't. And this was actually really helpful because now a no and a non-response became valuable. They became a data point. And so when somebody said no to me, it wasn't a personal attack or it wasn't an indictment of my value. Instead, it was a data point that I could use to better understand what strategies worked and didn't. And that really helped me because now I got excited to collect data. I was like, I want to understand what works and maybe this thing is working. So let me double down on that. So by doing that, I kind of took the pressure off of me and I turned it more into a game where a no was still valuable and wasn't necessarily, again, like an indictment of me or my value. So those were the two things that helped me the most. And the last thing I'll say is that the biggest mistake that candidates make with networking is they try to make it about themselves too early. That's the simplest way that I can put it. So the way that I like to view networking is kind of like a bank account or a checking account. And so Asking for a referral costs you, let's say, 20 social dollars. If I have $0 in my bank account and I try to make a $20 withdrawal, like there are consequences, right? I get overdraft fees. If I do that too much, the bank sends me a note and is like, what the heck are you doing? You know, if you keep doing this, we'll close down your account, whatever it is. There are all these consequences when that happens in real life with our actual bank accounts. It's the same thing with relationships, where if you just reach out and you try to make a withdrawal from that relationship with no deposits, no capital in there, you're going to rub the other person the wrong way. They're not going to respond. They're not going to be interested in helping you. But instead, if you work to make a couple of deposits first in the form of adding value in different ways, and then you ask for the referral, you're going to have a much, much better chance of getting it because you have a pre-existing relationship with this person. You've added some value to them. And there's a number of ways we can add value, right? Recognizing somebody for something that they've done in the past, maybe a career change, maybe an accomplishment, bringing somebody along, uh, making them part of our success story, basically asking them like, hey, I want to become better 
at this thing. You're really good at this thing. Would you recommend that I do A or B? And then actually doing it and reporting back to them, kind of turning them into a bit of a mentor or just helping them achieve a goal. You know, you have this podcast, right? And so anybody wanting to build a relationship with you could leave a review for this podcast and take a screenshot and send it to you. Or they could share the link with their team or a bunch of their friends and they could let you know about that. Or maybe they create a post on LinkedIn, right? There's a lot of different ways when we understand, you know, what's important to the other person. When we sit there and think about them and not us and we work to add value to them, that creates those deposits that then allow us to comfortably make the withdrawal at the end. That's kind of overarching the biggest concept that people, I think, need to internalize. And then it just becomes another game of experimentation of, you know, what is valuable to other people? How do I find that? How do I add it? And again, like anything else that we've talked about, it's part of the process. You got to experiment, you got to test and see what works for you. There's going to be some failures and some mistakes along the way. And that's part of life. That's part of, of finding the eventual success. Wow, I'm just here nodding along for anybody that's listening. I wish you could have just seen me just taking everything in. So I recommend you do exactly the same. Rewind, go back and take notes because this has to be one of the most gem-packed masterclasses in this podcast that I've ever received. Thank you so much, Austin. I do have one last question I'd love to ask all of my guests. And that is, if you could talk to baby Austin, what would you say and why? I would just tell baby Austin to be more curious. I, I, I wouldn't say that I wasn't curious, but I felt kind of stifled for a lot of reasons, whether it was I wanted to do things that my friends weren't into. I wanted to do things a certain way that my parents, they wanted me, maybe wanted me to do it a different way. And I also had the burden of being successful, if you will, uh, on my shoulders. And what I mean by that is I, I think we all carry that. Like we all want to be able to live a certain quality of life, be viewed a certain way by our friends and peers and all that. And because of that, I didn't do a lot of things that I wanted to do, or I, I stopped doing things that I was excited about. And so it took me till I was in my mid twenties to finally say, okay, I'm, I'm kind of done with that. And I'm going to do my own thing now. But I wish I'd, I'd done that a lot earlier and just kind of let go of other people's expectations. But that's really hard to do when you're super young and especially when you're a baby because we have a baby and he's very reliant on us. So, uh, But I'm trying to create space for him to do the things that he wants to do, even if that's just like hang out and do his thing now. But as he grows up, I hope that we make him feel like he can try the things that he wants to try with no pressure of being successful or doing all these other, you know, hitting these metrics or whatever. Um, I think exploration is like the most important thing for any of us. So. Absolutely. Well, I definitely love to hear that you're creating those opportunities for your son, since I know that you didn't feel, obviously, when we're little, it's just hard to do those things. But when somebody's fostering it for you as an adult and telling you it's okay to do this, it's a lot easier to make those decisions. So I applaud you for that. Again, thank you so much, Austin, for coming on the podcast. You have just given us so much value. Please let us know how we can find out more. Where can we follow you on social and where can we support you at your work and all of the amazing stuff that you're putting out there for job seekers? For sure. So the best place people like podcasts, I have my own. It's called the Dream Job System Podcast. So you can find that at cultivatedculture.com forward slash podcast. Basically, I share three episodes a week and they're all less than 15 minutes and I try to make them like as actionable as possible. And then outside of that, the website is great. And then you can find me on LinkedIn too. Just search for my name. I should pop right up and feel free to give me a follow and drop a comment or drop a like and hopefully we'll see you there. Absolutely. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. Have a wonderful day. You too, Ediana. Thank you so much. From effective networking to landing job offers, this is the podcast for action takers ready to be the best they can be without any fear. This is the Careers in Review podcast. Make sure to never miss an episode of Careers in Review. Subscribe to our podcast newsletter. 
you will receive exclusive information about upcoming shows, transcripts, and information about our guests. For all resources mentioned, show notes, transcriptions, and more details regarding topics discussed in today's show, please visit the Careers in Review website, www.careersinreview.com slash podcast. You can also follow Careers in Review on all socials for more exclusive video content. Thank you for listening. 